This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, you've helped a lot of people, Blair, deal with their debt issues and situations. Let's, uh, Let's talk about some really interesting case studies and give folks an opportunity to see if any of this sort of uh, fits with their situations because, uh, you know, we're not all that different, right? We're all in similar situations, I think, in terms of, you know, our, where we are in terms of our life and what we're doing and kids and homes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like we, we often say, you know, that that's become a fact of life these days and, you know, everyone that walks through our our doors or, you know, almost everyone really feels that they're the first person that's, that's faced this issue this severely. So the amount of times I'm asked, you know, this is probably the worst situation you've ever heard. And I'm like, well, it's not quite, but it's up there. (laughs) You know, know, yeah, we, we, we hear a lot of situations, but you know, the positive thing is a debt problem is not like many other problems where there's, you know, a hundred different solutions. Maybe they work all the time. A debt problem has a finite number, just a few solutions and they work every single time. So it's very positive, whatever the situation is, the first step is to reach out for help. And after that, it can be very straightforward to get the problem solved. Okay, well, let's talk about some of the, uh, first of all, let's do just a a brief definition, the difference between a bankruptcy and a consumer proposal. And then let's talk about some folks that have come to see you. Sure. So so focusing on a consumer proposal. So a consumer proposal um, is where you're making a deal with the people that you owe money to. So you sit down with the trustee and the trustee figures out, okay, hypothetically, if you were to file a bankruptcy, here's what would happen. Here's what would have to get paid back. And usually it's a very low recovery on the amount of the debts. You know, usually it's pennies on the dollar, maybe five or 10 cents on the dollar is what someone ends up paying back going through a bankruptcy. And a bankruptcy is everybody's legal right. You have the right to file for bankruptcy if you've got more debts than you're able to handle and you couldn't sell assets to pay those debts. So when the creditors consider that if someone can file for bankruptcy and they have to write off 90% of the debt or more, they're generally open to some options. They're open to offers. And that's exactly what a consumer proposal is. So a consumer proposal is an offer that's made to everybody that you owe money to, and it's for some amount of payment that's better than what would be recovered if you filed for bankruptcy, but that's less than the full amount of the debt plus the interest that they're charging you every month. So a good rule of thumb is normally a consumer proposal. You pay back a third to half of the debt over a period of up to five years. So if someone was owing, you know, let's say $40,000, which is a very typical amount of debt that we see these days, roughly a third of that is $13,000. So if someone came to us owing $40,000, we would help them file a consumer proposal that would have them pay back roughly $13,000. Over a five-year period, it's roughly $200 a month. So when people hear that, wow, I could owe $40,000 and I can deal with that debt for $200 a month, it sounds too good to be true. It's not. It happens every single day. It's what we do. Cool. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, the first, uh, first guy. Yeah, so, so this was an individual that came in to see me. Um, he was age 39 years old, and he had debts, as we were just talking about, of around $41,000. And the stories are always what's interesting here. And, you know, very few people that I, that I see got into debt from rash speculation and gambling extravagance. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it happens, but most of the time it's just, you know, life happens. So with this individual, um, his family grew. So his wife gave birth and actually gave birth to twins, which they, they didn't anticipate. Um, and his spouse had to take time away from work, more so more time than she anticipated to care for 
for the growing family. When he came to see us, his minimum payments were $2,100 per month, um, and he actually looked at his statements, and it was going to take him 39 years to pay off those debts. $2,100 a month, 39 years to clear it. He felt completely hopeless. Absolutely. Who wouldn't? Oh, my gosh. And he's only 39 years old. That's and right. going to take another 39 years to pay. Yeah. Crazy. Okay, so what did, you, what did you end up doing for him? Yeah, so, so we sat down, and both him and his wife came in, and the two kids as well, and we sat in the office, and we reviewed everything. You know, we looked at, they weren't, they didn't have any real estate, they were paying rent each month. We looked at their budget, there weren't a whole lot of extravagance there, it's just a case of, you know, family of four from a family of two, a lot of extra expenses. So we looked through a, a bankruptcy scenario, but, you know, for a bunch of reasons, he said, well, you know, there must be something else that, that's out there, and of course, we won, run through a consumer proposal, and what the consumer proposal was able to do was to reduce his debts by half of the total amount with zero interest and no additional fees. So that $2,100 a month plus interest, that went out the window. What he pays now in his proposal, you won't believe this, Elaine, from $2,100, $350. $350 a month. That's right. To pay off the debt, which is basically... In half, it yep. was forty-one thousand. It's be now be twenty something. Yeah, yeah, just over twenty. Yeah, and he's and how long will it take him to pay that? So at the minimum payments of three fifty, he's right. on a term of sixty months or five years. Okay. What most people do, and what he's trying to do now, we're only about six or eight months into this, um, is he's trying to double up on some payments. If he gets a three pay month, he's making an extra payment on the proposal. So the way the proposal works, and this is a great thing about proposals, is if you pay it off sooner, you actually rebuild your credit sooner. So okay. you have the right to run it to the full five years and there's no interest and no fees. So you don't save money by paying it off sooner, but you do put it behind you. You put it behind you on your credit. You start to put more positive stories on your credit moving forward. So he's trying to pay the proposal off sooner, which is what most people try to do. And this is a guy, and I, I think it's important to just remember, this was a guy who was married. They were expecting a child. They ended up with two. Mm-hmm. They weren't they didn't own real estate. They were renting. I mean, that fits the scenario of buckets and buckets of people, yeah. right? Where mm-hmm. things happen that you don't expect. And then you just naturally would accumulate that debt. I mean, just the cost of living alone, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, you always the right decision is to provide for the family, you know, to, yeah. to pay the rent, to pay the groceries. And, you know, for, for his situation, he just thought, okay, when wife gets back to work, we're going to be able to clear this sure. debt. Um, but when he started to see the 39 years, and they were struggling, 2100 bucks a month in, in payments, quite often what happens is, you know, that money doesn't come from salary. That money often comes from getting a cash advance from this card or getting a payday loan. It becomes this vicious cycle of just moving money around. And there's never a happy ending. All it does is deepen the problem. Right. So $350 a month, and, uh, and plus they can... St- can live, right? Yeah. They're, they're eating, they're doing all the things that they need to do. Yeah, and one of the extra benefits of a proposal, and this is beyond the financial, um, is that you're required to come for two counseling sessions. I've never had a client tell me they don't get value out of these counseling sessions. It's all the great financial literacy stuff they should teach in school, and they definitely didn't in my time. Hopefully they do now. Right. Um, but it's about rebuilding your credit, about household budgeting, about life after the proposal, how do you move forward. So we're really trying to equip this gentleman and his family with the tools so that, you know, the idea is not that you do a proposal after proposal. The idea is that you've reached a very difficult debt situation, you turn things around, and then we give you the tools to move forward so that you don't have to face the situation again. Excellent. Okay. Let's go to the uh, the second proposal, or the second example, case mm-hmm. study, uh, 
a, another guy, 35-year-old, 30, comes mm-hmm. in the door, and he's got skills. Yeah. He's got lots of skills, and go ahead. What's his story? Yeah, so it's just, just you know, luck of the draw here with two male clients. The split's actually a little bit more female. It's about 53% okay. female for our client base, but in this case, we've got two examples for, for gentlemen. Um, so, yeah, this gentleman was a skilled tradesman, um, 35 years old, and his unfortunate situation was health issues. So through no fault of his own, he suddenly found himself very sick, went through, you know, a number of months of therapies, doctors trying to figure things out for him, and all through that time, he couldn't work at his full capacity. So for his job, he wasn't getting paid when he wasn't, you know, able to show up, you know, skilled tradesman, when you're doing the work, piecework or whatever, you're making money. Without that, there's little to no social safety net, especially if you're self-employed. Exactly. Health benefits, all that stuff that we take advantage of when you work for a large company, you Mm -hmm. get, or most of us get, uh, but this case, that wasn't the situation at all. Yeah. So he had, you know, very little income coming in the door. He had therapies he had to pay for, prescription drugs, things like that. Um, By the time he finally sorted out his his health issues and he was able to become, you know, go back to work and earn his full capacity, he had accumulated $55,000 of consumer debt. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Yeah. And his big thing that threw him through, that pushed him through the door for us was, you know, he knew the number was big and he, he just thought, okay, I'll put my head down and I will work through this. But it was the calls. He said it was more than mm. 10 times a day, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. at night, people coming through the, the phone at him, making him feel, you know, like he's, you know, just the smallest type of person in, in the world, making him sound dishonest when, you know, he tried to do the best that he could every day of his life. And it was his health that really dropped out on him. And that'd be a bit scary as well. Mm-hmm. I would, I would feel very fearful if I had that kind of bombardment of, of calls coming at me. Yeah. And, and he, you know, through that fear, and this is usually, this is why the calls are so unpleasant is because they often work and that he was making minimum payments of, that were more than half of his income. His income was $3,200 per month. He was paying $1,600 in minimum payments and struggling to live on, on the balance. So at 3200 you cut it in half and then you pay rent. There's very little left there at the end of the day. Absolutely. So he had done that for several months and then he came in to see us. Cool. So what were you able to come up with him? I mean, how did it all work out for this guy? Well, so in his situation, he's actually finished now. Uh, what we were able to do was to, we filed a consumer proposal and we took the debts from 55000 plus interest every day getting bigger. We reduced it by more than half down to 23400 Right off the bat, that's mm-hmm. where you started. That's what the creditors accepted. So we cool. made that offer. 45 days later, the creditors accepted, which is 95 to 99% of proposals. They get accepted. So this isn't a pipe dream. It's almost every case they get through here. And the way he structured his proposal is he thought in his income, he can afford to make higher payments, so he paid six fifty a month over a three third sorry over a thirty six month term. Wow. That's incredible. So where is he now in this uh, in this story? Well, so he's finished, I think it's about two years ago now, so it's starting to drop off of his credit report, which is excellent. So on Equifax and TransUnion, a proposal will clear two to three years after your last payment. So, you know, he eventually wanted to save money, you know, get a down payment, get real estate, so on and so forth. Um, so he really timed it. Let's pay off the proposal sooner. Let's start to rebuild the credit while we're saving the down payment. So his goal is ideally to get into the real estate market, hopefully when there's some price correction in a few years here. Cool. And in just in, in, in wrapping it up a little bit more about him, um, he got there through no fault of his own. 
How do you, is there a way that, um, in terms of the education that these folks get at uh, the counseling that they get, is there, is there some things that we can all take away from this to, to be prepared for, or how do we be prepared for something like that? Yeah, the, the number one thing, Elaine, we counsel this for everybody, is you know, to really plan for the unexpected. And, mm-hmm. and the way that you do that is you build up a cushion. You build up an emergency fund. Best practices are typically three to six months of your expenses. So anybody that has that, they're not resorting to credit because every time you go through credit, you know, 20% interest, it's going to double every three years. If you've got the savings to work out and, you know, really to give you a peace of mind that, hey, I'm living off savings, not on credit, that's your number one best way to try to avoid the situation. And I would think that if that seems like an enormous struggle, a huge challenge to do, then maybe it's time to really look at your expenses yep. and your debts and, and maybe sooner than later, check in with uh, check in with you. Exactly. Cool. For more information or if anything, any of uh, what we've talked about uh, sort of resonates with you, uh, listening to Dollars and Cents today, check uh, Blair Manton, Sands & Associates. The web- website's nice and easy, sands-trustee.com. Or you can call one 800 661 3030 for a free consultation to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. On the line is Bridget Casey. She's the president and CEO of Money After Graduation. It's a financial literacy website solely dedicated to helping college students and new grads pay off student debt, learn to budget, save money, invest for the future. Now get this, here's the stat. Since its inception back in January 2012, the site has grown to get over 3,000 visitors a day. Bridget, that's amazing. (laughs) Thank you. Boy, and what a great topic. I had so much fun going through your website, Money After Graduation. It's a, it's a, um, it's an issue for sure, the cost of education these days, and for young people to figure out how to get there and, the, and, and, and create all this money or get the student debt and, or uh, student loans in order to do this. So important, education, but boy, oh boy, the debt can be just so overwhelming. Yeah, it really is. I think the average graduate uh, finishing university or college with as much as $30,000 now. And that would just be for an undergrad degree, right? Yeah. Yeah, compared to going for uh, going for more after that. And I understand that that's the thing to do is just keep getting more degrees these days. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of have to. Right? So let's, let's talk to the student right now. Uh, or first off, what kind of... Um, what kind of the what are the common pitfalls that uh, that students, uh, recent students or recent grads need to watch out for? It's borrowing too much student loans and taking on too much debt. I mean, when you're 18 or 19 and you're just starting university, you've probably never even earned thirty or forty thousand dollars in a single year before. So it's hard to understand large of a balance that really is when you're taking it on as debt. So just being aware that when you are signing on the dotted line for these amounts of ten or $15,000 or more per year, 
of your degree when you graduate, that is real money that you have to pay back. And if it's close to or more than your salary, it's going to take you a number of years to get the balance down to zero. So, so Bridget, I remember when I was going through through university, you know, whatever the government would give you on your student loan, everyone took the maximum. It sounds like what you're saying is, you know, that conventional wisdom is not, is not wise. Um, you know, really be careful. Maybe don't take the maximum. Think about, you know, if you could get by on less to minimize the debt after graduation. Is that, that what you're saying? Yeah, that would be great. The alternative is to take the maximum and just store what you don't need in a savings account, because really the government is going to give you more in loans than you actually need for your tuition and fees because they account for living expenses and additional costs like textbooks and computers. But if you can find even a small part-time job during the weekends or in the summers, you won't need to rely on this debt to carry you through university. And then you can just keep it in a savings account and return it to the government when you graduate. It sounds like such a, um, I don't know if if hard is the right word, but uh, if I want this degree, if this is the thing that I want to do more than anything, and this is what it's going to cost me, uh, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get, you know, achieve that end. Uh, but the cost involved is so enormous. It, you must you must run into all kinds of people who have uh, huge uh, challenges when it comes to uh, comes to school debt. Yeah, I think a lot of people borrow under the guise that student loan debt is always good debt, which isn't necessarily true if it doesn't lead to a degree that earns you a higher income, then it's really bad debt. But we have a tendency to turn a blind eye to the cost of borrowing and the amount we borrow. And again, it's just that expectation that we'll be able to pay it off with ease, but you really can't predict where you will be in two or four or six years and what the job market will be like and what your income will be like. Yeah, and Bridget, we did a, a study as Sands and Associates a few years ago. We went on campus and we surveyed students and we asked them, you know, well, how much do you expect to earn six months after graduation, a year after, two years after, and how quickly do you think you'll pay down your debt? And no surprise to you, and it wasn't a surprise to us, was just the incredible optimism of, of students. You know, <laughs> ju- yeah, just about everybody thought they'll be well above the median income in BC, you know, within six months to a year. And just about everybody thought they'd have their debts paid off within a few years, where the research, and Bridget, you probably have more current numbers, but I thought it's, you know, around 10 years or so is is the average for a student loan to get cleared these days. Yeah, and the reason for that is because that's the term on student loans. I think there's just a large disconnect between how much opportunity there really is in the job market and how much you can ask for as an entry-level employee. And then, again, you don't have those skills like salary negotiation, which is a really easy, well, it's a really painful 20-minute conversation, but it can add two or three or $5,000 to your starting pay. But when you're coming out of university, you don't know how to do that. And the other thing grads don't consider is how long it actually takes to find a job. Maybe you will get hired at a fifty or $60,000 a year job right out of university, but it might, it might take you six or nine months to actually find that job. Exactly. And then once you, even if you get that great job, and let's say it's in the lower mainland, the cost of living, uh, you know, rarely do, does everybody sort of figure in the cost of living, especially yeah, young absolutely. people. <laughs> right? 
that's why I say if you're borrowing forty or fifty thousand dollars, you might think, oh well, I'll pay it back, no problem, because I'm going to earn fifty thousand dollars as soon as I graduate. But you're losing a lot of money to income taxes, living expenses, rents are sky high. It costs at least four or five hundred dollars a month for groceries. If you own a car, it's something else. Like most young people, really only have a few hundred dollars, if that, to put towards their debt when they've graduated and it will take years at that pace to pay off a forty or fifty thousand dollar balance. Now, now Bridget, we've talked a lot about um, student loans, you know, the government student loans, but um, definitely a pet peeve of, of mine is, you know, credit card companies when they go on campus for Frost Week with, you know, the giveaways and getting everyone to sign up for a credit card. Um, you know, to me, that that can be a, a big issue when, when folks graduate is, you know, they're, they're counseled, hey, get this credit card, it'll help you build your credit rating. Um, you know, my view is, hey, you can build your credit rating pretty quick. You don't necessarily need to get the card on campus uh, for whatever the gifts are there. Oftentimes it hooks, you know, students on credit pretty early in life. Uh, I'm curious your view. Would you think, you know, students are doing a smart thing by getting the credit card when it's offered on campus or should they delay? Uh, I don't really like the campus credit cards because I don't think they give good offers. Like you said, it's usually a cheap gift like a t-shirt or a mug for signing up for an annual fee card that has no rewards. But if they go to their bank and they can get a no annual fee card that has some kind of travel rewards or cash back with a very low limit, say like 500 or $1,000 to start, then that's fine. Because I do believe in building credit when you're young. Your student loans will also build credit. And the reason I'm not as concerned with credit card debt is even though the interest rates are very high, I mean, you're going to pay 20% on uh, your in interest on your credit card debt. But if your credit card only has a $1,000 limit, I mean, it sucks, but it's not really going to hurt you financially the same way borrowing tens of thousand dollars of government or personal loans to go to school will. Bridget, have you got some other good uh, tips for for folks just either getting into school or coming out of school and how they can uh, sort of do a better job than, let's say, somebody who's not been listening to you? (laughs) Well, I'm really focused on increasing your income. I always work two, sometimes three jobs while I was in university. And I try to keep most of those jobs on campus, like tutoring or being one of those people that monitors the computer labs. So one of the best things you can do when you're a student is just find a really easy part-time job to boost your income. Because even if you're subsisting on student loans to pay your tuition and your rent, you can use this extra money coming in for fun, like your beer money for Friday night. So I think the more you get used to working hard, balancing your time, earning extra income and managing your finances, that's really what's going to serve you well throughout university and also after you graduate. Bridget, such great advice. Uh, Listen, in wrapping up, I just want to encourage everyone to take a look at your website, moneyaftergraduation.com. You've got a blog, you've got a fabulous e-course that I started to take a look at earlier, and a YouTube channel uh, where you actually talk people through some things. It's just such a great website, and you're such, I just love the fact that you've taken on this topic. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. On the line with us is Mike. Now, Mike, I'm gonna—I never even asked you before we started. How do you say your last name? 
Last name is Guelpa. Guelpa. Yeah. He's a senior practice lead at IOSecure, one of the top Cisco partners in British Columbia. He's got a great combination of technical and business skills to help you navigate the most complex and challenging technology solutions. Now, the good news is that we're, we're not going to talk super specifically technical language on this, but things, I think, for business people to really pay attention to on a daily basis, uh, because boy, oh boy, in this web-based world that we all live in, um, I feel like there's always a drive that we need to know more and sort of protect ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, thanks very much for having me on the show. And um, yeah, I think, um, you know, a few things that we definitely want to keep track of or we encourage is, uh, you know, is education, first and foremost. I mean, Mm -hmm. the internet is ever-changing and evolving, and it's really tough to keep up with new trends and different types of attacks and software. So, um, you know, definitely education uh, would encourage people to make education part of your routine and, uh, and you know, definitely um, uh, attention to detail is, uh, is another piece that I think definitely helps people out. And, um, you know, are you expecting to receive email or phone calls or messages from people and uh, just want to make sure that, you know, you double-check anything before you click on it. Uh, check that you're on the right site. Uh, lots of sites out there are, uh, uh, you know, set up to uh, trick you or fool you hmm. and uh, often mislead you. So uh, obviously with some of the good that is out on the Internet, there's always the bad. So, um, you know, just uh, have to beware. Yeah, Mike, it's, it's definitely, it's become, you know, almost a, a pop culture topic these days of, you know, what's the latest cyber attack and the latest hack and, the, you know, the latest scam email. And uh, for my clients, I see huge numbers of people coming in with what look like really official emails from Canada Revenue Agency, um, you know, asking them for a payment or asking them to go buy a gift card or things like that. So, you know, the, they might, it might look, you know, like the, the most legitimate thing ever, but there's definitely a lot of risks out there for, for consumers. Um, I wonder for, for today's discussion, can you tell me a little bit about the most common areas of vulnerability for consumers? Yeah, I mean, uh, <clears throat> we're sort of seeing it on, on many fronts. Um, definitely, uh, you, you kind of touched on it, the, uh, the identity theft and, I guess, fraud as a, as a part of that, where, um, you know, people are going after your personal information and um, are either soliciting you to, uh, to make payments or to uh, click on links. Uh, we're seeing it a little bit still in email world, uh, you know, uh, malicious URLs or bad URLs that are attached in an email or physical attachments themselves. Uh, somebody sends you uh, a document that um, that could be compromised. Um, lots of social media stuff out there as well. Um, so just be aware of the, you know, your online presence and and uh, what information is publicly available for you. And as well, we're still seeing it on uh, phones, um, landlines and cell phones. Uh, you're getting uh, text messages from people, uh, phone calls from different countries. Uh, uh, you know, so we're sort of seeing it on all fronts of uh, technology still. It's interesting, too, because it's gotten more and more sophisticated, I've found. I've had a cell phone and been on email for as long as it's been around. Uh, and... In the old days, you'd get, you know, crazy stuff, and you absolutely knew right mm-hmm. off the bat that it was, you know, somebody from from somewhere trying to, trying to scam me. But I've seen email recently uh, from companies uh, like, for example, Apple, and I've seen um, the, uh, well, two things. One, they've sent me a receipt for something that I've purchased, <laughs> which 
I haven't purchased, but it looks so authentic, Mike. I mean, it's crazy how good these uh, uh, scam artists, for lack of a better word, I'm sure there's a much more sophisticated term for them, but it's it's really scary. And I'm, you know, reasonably uh, reasonable, reasonably adept at looking at something and going, oh, that's real, that's fake. But boy, oh boy, uh, there's so many of us that, you know, don't don't give it a second look these days. Well, I think the funny thing, Elaine, is as you're mentioning that email, I got the same one. Right? <laughs> so I wonder how many of our listeners get the iTunes purchase receipt exactly. and, you know, click here to dispute. I didn't buy this. And then, then suddenly you're in there. Um, I wonder, Mike, if, if you can tell us, I know everyone's wondered this, what if you do click on the malicious link or you open the wrong attachment? What happens and what can you do? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's definitely... Uh, um it's definitely a risk, and you know, again, it kind of comes back to those those points earlier about education and attention to detail. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that you know we always encourage people to do is, and it, and it sounds really, um, you know, a bit of a broken record, but is to obviously make sure uh, backups and and uh, backing up often uh, your systems. Um, so whether they're computers or uh, you know, even cell phones nowadays, uh, you want to make sure that you, you know, you obviously get the right tools and, uh, and make sure you have a, a mix of, uh, you know, software, virus scanning, uh, internet security that can help protect you, uh, that you've got a good knowledge base uh, of, you know, what programs are on your computer and um, obviously making sure that you have your backups because if you do, click on something and, uh, and are compromised, then, um, you know, you can, at least you have the tools that are in place to, uh, to fix the problem. Um, and if not, you know, it's definitely something that you can reach out to, uh, to people for help on. Um, you know, it, it's, you're not alone, and, and uh, it happens often. And uh, sometimes it's, um, you know, <clears throat> sometimes it's pretty minor impact, and other times, um, you know, a, a hard drive could be lost as a result. So, um, you know, having a backup and having it in a, in a safe, secure location and doing it often um, definitely helps and uh, mitigate that risk for sure. Mike, can you define for me what phishing is? I hear it all the time. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, phishing is is basically it's a it's a targeted attempt to acquire sensitive information. So, um, usernames, credit card numbers, social insurance numbers uh, from people. So, you know, back to those Apple emails that you described. Um, I've received some from PayPal, uh, Netflix. You know. The logos look exactly the same. Um, uh, you know, it's definitely an evolution, and um, you know, much like the internet, and and <laughs> most commonly you see it in an electronic format. So, you know, like we talked about, you get an email or even a text message. Um, I've you know I've seen it been done over the phone. Um, you know, it's mm-hmm. been in the news where people are getting phone calls from the CRA or from the IRS saying, "Well, you owe you know you owe money and." Um, you know, there's there's usually an element of um, information that they want or payment that they want, and um, uh, you know they're they're trying to fish that information from you. You know, they they cast a wide net and they try and uh, make enough phone calls or send enough emails that uh, even if one person out of a uh, hundred responds, then uh, it obviously just propagates. So. 
Now, if that should happen to uh, one of us where we get that, let's say it's, uh, let's say it's uh, uh, in an email form or uh, on the phone, uh, what's the best thing to do? I mean, I have my set of things that I do when I, I know that this person doesn't have a clue who they're talking to and they're just trying to get me to uh, jump on something for them or with them so that they can uh, uh, scam me in some way. But is there, is there a couple of key, really key tips that you can give folks to battle this? Yeah, I mean, I guess the first part is to, 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 is to spot it. Um, you know, so that comes, comes back to that attention to detail. You know, you've got to double check before clicking on anything and, and you know, never open attachments from un- unknown users. Um, that definitely helps. Um, check the details of the senders of emails. Um, just, uh, you know, in most of the email programs nowadays, you can click a little down arrow and, and see the email address. Uh, you know, of, of where the email is coming from. And uh, usually from that, you can tell pretty quickly whether it's uh, legitimate or not. And, and again, it's that extra click that could save you a lot of time later on. Um, you know, being aware that social engineering is definitely used, and, and those emails definitely look legitimate. Um, logos match, emails seem, you know, correct. So it's a bit of a, you know, you have to be diligent. And... Um, you know, the, I guess the one thing that is a little bit different is that, you know, phishing scams are usually made to look a little bit time-sensitive, so they're meant to rush you into mm. clicking or responding or uh, divulging that payment inf- information. So, um, right. you know, it your, also your account will be frozen until you, yeah, you do this. Or, and, yeah, you know, we're contacting the local authorities or, you know, you need to do this by tomorrow or else. Um you know, it, it helps to know where your payments are going, where your credit cards are used and in an online forum. And I guess the, the one thing is, you know, when you're in doubt, um, pick up the phone and call. Most companies or most organizations, even the government, you know, they, they still, you know, rely on, uh, on a phone call. And uh, very rarely are they ever, uh, you know, uh, time sensitive uh, from a you have to do this right now. You have to click on this. You have to enter your information. Uh, so um, if people are coming after you saying that kind of thing, it, it's usually um, sort of a first sign or signal that uh, something's amiss. Often, too, banking institutions will, will, say, will come out and say, we will not contact you this way. We won't contact you via email. We won't even contact you uh, telephone-wise. Or we may phone and leave you a message, and then you call. That's it. But that can also be a bit tricky, too. But if you have your own set of numbers where you call RBC for lack of, you know, your Visa card, let's say somebody's saying your Visa card's been stolen or your Visa card has been uh, used somewhere else, actually phoning Visa yourself with your own number on the back of your statement, that can, uh, that can do away with a lot of headaches, too. Yep, definitely. The one thing I want to ask you, too, as we sort of uh, wind down here, Mike, is passwords. I, I hear from pe- people all the time about you need to change your passwords uh, constantly, every six weeks, once a month. What do you recommend for folks? Yeah, I mean, passwords are, uh, I guess, in this digital age, they're, they're ever-growing and uh, ever more complicated. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, from a password perspective, um, you know, you obviously want to make sure that, um, you know, you don't use the same password for everything. Um, you know, make them hard to guess, make them random, make them phrases. Uh, don't use words that are in the dictionary. There's lots of programs out there that can um, 
run through uh, uh, you know uh, a dictionary uh, quite quickly, uh, trying to guess people's passwords. Definitely include uh, special characters and numbers, make it more challenging for people to guess. Um, you know, if you have enough passwords, look into a password management tool. Um, there's lots of them out there that uh, that will help you. Uh, you know, don't put sticky notes all over the place. Definitely, uh, you can use these tools to store your passwords and uh, and make it hard to uh, hard to remember. Um, you know, a lot of the programs nowadays are offering uh, two-factor authentication. So um, the idea is that you have you have something physical that you know and. Um, um, and something that you physically have, so it, it makes it a lot harder for um, people to, I guess, for lack of a better term, guess those passwords. There's a confirmation. Um, lots of them use text programs, so when you log in, um, you know, you'll get a text message saying, uh, "Please type in the confirmation code that we've just sent you," and then you can type that in, and you know that um, that your device has just initiated that login. Um, yeah, so that helps. Yeah, super duper. That's really great advice, Mike. Thank you so much. For more information, if you want to uh, get a hold of uh, Mike at IOSecure, IOSecure.com is his website. Uh, Mike uh, Gulpa, Senior Practice Lead at IOSecure, one of the top Cisco partners in British Columbia. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mike. Thanks very much for having me. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services that we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 to find an office near you. So, Blair, we've been talking about, we've mentioned uh, consumer proposals a couple of times. Let's really kind of delve into that Mm -hmm. because it's such an interesting concept to me. What is a consumer proposal? Who needs something like that? Right. So who needs a consumer proposal is anybody that finds themselves way in over their head on their debts. So it could be that they've got, you know, way more debt than they're ever going to pay off, or it's a case that the monthly payments, the minimum payments, they're able to handle them, but they just know in the long term, it's it's not going to make financial sense. They're just never going to get out of debt. Yeah. So you're feeling like you're just going down deeper and deeper into the mud. If you've got that hopeless feeling, if you're getting collection calls, if, you know, maybe your wages are starting to be seized, you know, those are all some pretty severe indicators that you probably need to do something to fix your financial situation. Which creditors, I just want to say, mm-hmm. have the ability to do that, right? To oh, go I, after your wages. Oh, ab- absolutely. Yeah. Depending on, on who you owe, um, if it's the government, you may not get a whole lot of advance notice before suddenly 30% of your paycheck is, is going straight off to the government. If it's MasterCard, Visa, so on and so forth, you'll get a little bit of notice. But yeah, definitely creditors can hurt you where, where it hurts most, which is taking either your wages off your check or even going to your banking bank account and scooping some money out of the the bank. So creditors can do things to you if you don't pay your bills on time. Okay. So I've come to you, Mm -hmm. I'm in trouble, and you suggest to me consumer proposal is where we want to go, Elaine. How, where do we start? Yeah. So the way a consumer proposal works is it's basically, it's a legal arrangement. It's, It's an agreement between you and the people that you owe money to, where right off the top, we stop all of the interest. So we say, okay, there's no reasonable way you're going to get your head above water if the target keeps moving away from you at, you know, 20% interest a year or 25% interest. So proposal right away stops all of the interest. And then the agreement is working out how much can you reasonably afford to pay back. 
And it's not the never-never plan. It's not 10 or 15 years of payments. It's over a period not exceeding five years. What can you reasonably afford to pay back? In most cases, it's about a third to half of the debt is reasonable. And that would mean I'm, I'm paying back my, my uh, creditors as well as I'm, I'm still able to live a life. That's the ideal, right? And we definitely see this in our clients at Sands and Associates um, in that, you know, we're all, in general terms, we're all honest people. We all want to honor the obligations that we've got. And, and to a person, people that come into my door, they're not proud of being in debt. They know it's because something has generally gone wrong. Um, so when they find them, themselves in debt, a proposal is a way of, you know, whether it's dignity or honor or whatever, it's doing the best they possibly can short of going into a bankruptcy, which in a bankruptcy, you know, you throw your your hands up and, you know, essentially you say, I can't afford to repay the debt. In a proposal, it's a proactive measure that you're taking to just make a deal for what you can afford to pay back on the debts. And that would include things like if I've I've got a car and I'm making car payments, all of a sudden my uh, dollars are being stretched so thinly. Mm -hmm. What what can, what can you do for me there? Well, so if, if it's a car, there's, you know, a couple of, of big questions. So, you know, first off, do you, do you still need the car? You know, you need it to get to work. Is it a reasonable car? It meets your needs and so on and so forth. In many cases, if the answers to both of those questions are yes, it's the right car and you do need it and it's the right price, a proposal can put you in a much better position to actually continue to make those payments. Because if we're able to eliminate all of your interest payments, and in many cases, Elaine, the reduction is so dramatic, it's remarkable to to the extent that, you know, people might have $1,500 of minimum payments, $1,500 of minimum payments to make each month, and a proposal takes that down to, you know, three or 400 So suddenly there's a lot more space in the budget so you can actually afford the car payment. So that's number one. Now, if it's the case that you're, you know, really handcuffed or you feel that way you're handcuffed to the car loan, um, a proposal can give you a chance to just restructure everything in your life. So if you've got a bunch of debt to Visa, MasterCard, taxes, and you've got this car loan that you feel like you can't get out of, you can just restructure everything under a consumer proposal and then decide, do you still need the vehicle or not? There are means to actually get yourself a a much better outcome through the proposal. Now, are you going to cut up my credit cards? Is that one of the first things you're going to do? It's not the first thing, but it's (laughs) it's about number three. Is that Um, right? So yeah, one of the, basically it it makes a whole lot of sense is at the end of the proposal, you've got to owe nobody anything or else what's the point? It's getting you back to a fresh start. And the government has a very hard and fast rule that if you do a consumer proposal, you you have to turn in your credit cards. So, okay. you know, yeah, some people, their hands are shaking as they're, as they're handing them over. You can tell right? it's emotional. Most of the time, people are very happy saying this thing's doing no good for me anyway. It's been maxed out. It's been frozen, so on and so forth. But definitely people have some fear of how do you get by in this modern society without a credit card? Well, yeah, especially when credit card companies are uh, working like crazy to mm-hmm. get you to have one or two or three, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's a bit nutty. I know the this, this situation in the United States is a little different than ours here in Canada, but the rules are a little bit uh, overwhelming, at, at, I find. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's not even just the credit card companies, but if you want to rent a car, you know, usually you need a credit card. If you're on a flight and you want to buy yourself a can of Coke, well, you usually need a credit card for that, too. Right. Um, so ways you generally get, get around it is you can get a secured credit card. So literally the day after you turn in your credit cards to the trustee, the next day, if you've saved, you know, $500 or so, you go put a deposit down on a secured credit card. So right off the top, you've now got the ability to use a credit card, you know, online or a travel or things like that. But what's also great too is as soon as you start with that secured credit card, you're actually rebuilding your credit. 
And does that also mean that it's only it's only going to be uh, worth that amount mm-hmm. of money? Though, so the five hundred or six hundred dollars. That's right. So it's you know it's self imposed. It keeps you from getting into trouble. Right. So from the credit card company's point of view, you can imagine the day after you've just made an agreement with them to pay off a third of the debt, they're not going to be willing to, to start to loan you money again. Sure. But if it's a secured credit card, they do want the customer. And again, it helps with your credit rating after the proposal is done. If you can show that you've really paid off that secured credit card every month, they didn't have to take your deposit. They give you the deposit back at the end of the time when you move on to an unsecured credit card, if you choose to do that. Now, I'm always a little bit flippant about how things how the rules are in the United States compared to how they are in Canada. Um, and it, when it comes to credit cards, and, you know, I made that comment about uh, um, the American companies always seem to be giving you more and more credit cards, mm-hmm. right? We've heard those horror stories, especially in the housing crisis. Oh, yeah. Um, is that the case in Canada or are our rules a little bit better? They've gotten better in recent years, but there was definitely the the Wild West or the age of easy credit, whatever you want to call it. You know, there were periods of time where the clients that, that came through my door, I just, I couldn't believe the amount of credit that they had been extended to them. Yeah. You know, well over six figures in some cases for people that had seen their tax returns, they had never made more than $20,000 in a year. Wow. And this is all publicly available stuff. If you're giving somebody a credit card, you check the credit bureau, you see see what's open. So I think for a period of time, the taps were far too free and open in Canada in terms of availability of credit. It's gotten better now. So there are certain new rules, meaning that you can no longer send an unsolicited credit card. You just, you just can't anymore. You're not going to get those cards in the mail. Oh, interesting. Okay, because that would be really helpful for folks who have a hard enough time, right? Just trying to manage their own finances, let alone being offered eight, another 18000 or 20000 yeah. or 10000 or whatever. Yeah, and, and the universal thing that I often hear from clients is, you know, well, the bank must be keeping watts behind the scenes. You know, the bank wouldn't have loaned me this money unless they really know that I can afford it. You know, essentially the bank might know better than you. The bank doesn't know better than you. There's mm-hmm. nobody behind the scenes and very very quickly, um, it's possible to get yourself into trouble. The bank's not watching behind the scenes and making sure they're not giving you too much credit. That all happens when, you know, the horse is already out of the barn. They're starting to do the collection calls because they know they've given you too much credit. Exactly. Um, What if my debts are also in someone else's name? How does that work? Well, it can definitely be incredibly awkward. Yeah, um, like, and yeah. what's what's the situation where that, or, you know, what would be the situation? Yeah, quite often I see it, uh, whether it's, you know, marital situations where one person's got a credit card and the husband or the wife gets a supplementary card. Sometimes that can make that person liable for the balance outstanding. Um, I also see it quite a bit with students where their parents have co-signed for a student line of credit. So not a government loan. You don't co-sign for those, but a bank line of credit. Yes. And what happens if the client's in in my office is I say, absolutely, we can solve your liability. I can make sure the bank doesn't bother you on this debt. We can do a consumer proposal, things like that. But the bank, you know, kudos to them. They were smart enough to have more than one pocket to dig into. I can stop them from digging in your pocket client, I can't stop them from going to the person that's co-signed the debt. Hmm, interesting. And and that would be a situation for uh, married people as well, right? If, you're, mm-hmm. if you've got everything in both of your names? Yeah, it, it can be. Um, you know, it always makes sense if it's a married couple for both partners to be heavily involved in any financial discussions, definitely any financial restructuring that might happen. Right. Because usually what, what would happen is, you know, both husband and wife have various debts, maybe they're joint, you would do a proposal together. You would just deal with the whole household situation. 
But if the husband or wife um, perhaps tries to hide something from the other person mm-hmm. and tries to do a proposal for themselves, not realizing that some of the debt is joint, well, then the other person on that account is going to get a notification. Well, since Joe has filed a consumer proposal, you, Mary, are on the hook for 100% of the debt. Right. You can imagine the awkwardness of that conversation. Yeah. So communication, honesty within couples, all that really matters when you're dealing with finance. You're listening to Blair Manton with Sands & Associates. I'm Elaine Scollin. The show is called Dollars and Cents. Sands & Associates, experts in helping you get out of debt. For more information on any of the services we've talked about, go to the website, sands-trustee.com for more information. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.